Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery, who makes sophisticated, elk-free drinks that still have all the taste of a good time. G&T without the tears, whiskey without the wobbles, and other delicious cocktails too. Switching the ritual instead of ditching the ritual is so much easier. Stay in high spirits, keep a clear mind, head to mondaydistillery.com for more. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the studio, I'm so stoked to have comedian, beautiful human. What else are you? Uh, I'm a writer. I'm a, um, what else am I? I'm a, um, I don't know. I'm sort of a teacher. I teach comedy. I'm, I do a lot of things. The other day I decided I was a show off. That was, you know how you look when you kind of go, I'm a writer and then I do, you know, I mentor and then I, I went, I'm just a show off. I think that's it really. Comedian, show off. I can oh, and aspirant politician. I had a good crack at it. You did have a crack at the old Greens thing. Yeah, yeah I did. I'll go one more time next time. I voted, did, I voted for you, by the thank way. Thank you. Yeah. Not just because I know you, but. Oh, that's, I hope, I hope because of my integrity. Actually, that was a really good reason. We'll get onto that later, obviously, but one of the good reasons of getting is, your shit together around alcohol is even the thought that you're going to head towards parliament, you're kind of going, you you really need to make sure you don't want to be drunk. No. You see all the bad <laughs> stuff happens. Stuff happens. Yeah. 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 Messy. So show off. Mandy Nolan, welcome mm. to the studio today. Thank you. How are you? I'm really good. Actually, I'm really good. I'm um, about two, I think I'm about two months in. I I'm. I, I can't remember the exact date. It's in my diary, but I'll go back and find it. But yeah. So uh, two months sober. Yeah, two months sober, maybe even 10 weeks, maybe two and a half. That's amazing. Well done. Yeah. And today we are going to publicly declare 
that you're going to take on a 12-month challenge, right? I am. And we're looking right into the headlights of Christmas, New Year, which I think gives anyone who's stopped drinking um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Just the thought of, oh, no, we're going to have to go. That is the hard period, isn't it? That's the... And when you get through that, you feel really good. You feel very accomplished. I took a challenge group through Christmas and New Year's last year and uh, it was awesome. It was That's challenging good. for them. There was a lot of alcohol-free beers drunk for yeah. those people and alcohol-free champagnes, but pretty much all of them smashed it. Oh, that's really you just got to be prepared. Yeah, my birthday's in January as well. So it's always mm. been, for me, that's always been um, the hardest period. Mm-hmm. I think like for anybody it's the hardest period. But also as a comedian, doing a lot of Christmas shows, you'll mm. be doing a lot of end-of-year parties. And and there's always been an expectation for me because I'm, I'm really, look, I'm everyone loves me when I'm pissed because I'm actually really fun. I'm fun to be around anyway, but I'm pretty outrageous when I'm pissed and people like, and I think I think people miss piss me. Yeah. I don't because yeah. I wake up going, oh, did I take off my shirt and run around last night going like I'll do really, not always, but I'll do really silly things. Mm-hmm. Yes. For a laugh. I'll do anything for a laugh, right? Yeah. Oh, everyone loves that. Yeah, that's right. I've got more. I have more um, filters when I'm sober because I go home. Yeah, I can so relate to that. You know that you're the, the if you're the outgoing person mm. and you you're the one that kind of wants to keep the excitement going. And I think I was like that. Um, yeah, and people really like that. So they get a bit disappointed when you're not that anymore. So that's going to be an interesting thing for us to. I think we talk need about. to have. Yeah, I, we need to have. It's almost like you need a funeral where you get to bury pissed you. <laughs> That's like, a great idea. We should get Zenith involved in that. Yeah, like get rid of that that kind of weird persona. And there's things that you can act. Imagine actually doing a eulogy for pissed you. I'd love to hear what my friends would say about that person because it makes me feel. You get that when when you think of what you've done when you've drunk or said, and even if it's not that bad, I repeat myself. I'm repeaty. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm really repeating. I'm never violent or angry. I'm loving, boring, outrageous, and when I'm really drunk, repeaty, and then I pass out and fall asleep. Do your friends tell you that you're Petey repeaty? Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. They that's tell me. Good. I've got one friend, my best friend, Lisa. She's harsh, man. Yeah. And uh, she, she she used to say to me, yeah, fuck, you've already told me that. And you go, I don't care. I have to say it again. <laughs> what is that? What is no. it? I, I, why, why do we drink something that makes us... Like say the same thing over and over, like a and real dumb. Like my IQ, honestly, mm. I don't know, I know what my IQ is. I'm a reasonably intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Two drinks in, you know, mm. the burden of of an of an intelligent mind is gone. <laughs> it's gone, and yes. I'm going fuck. How good is it to be stupid? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the appeal. Do you think either? it is? I do. You know, it is actually fun to be stupid for a while. Anyway. Yeah. Well, as we, we'll, we'll sort of track your journey over All the right. next 12 months, which will be amazing. So it'll be great to hear about, yeah. you know, when that is challenging for people when you're not being peedy repeaty or being, yeah. you know, super out there and running around with your boobs out, which you can still do actually when you're sober. Oh, I just remembered. I, I can't, you can. There's things you wouldn't do. Mm. Like I do. Like there's just things like, you know, I love a skinny dip. Mm. When I'm drunk, 
Like I'd do it anyway because I've got no issues around nudity, mm-hmm. but probably not five o'clock in the afternoon at a party with lots of other people there. Like I'll go, let's just have a swim, strip off and jump in. And like, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, but you'll do it at 5 a.m. in the morning at the exactly. sunrise with the people walking their dogs. Yeah. And, you know, they That's often a get a time to do it. Yeah, they often see my red fluff down there and. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Yeah, those are their better choices. Oh my God. There is. I mean, I. Do you still have that thing where you think of things that you've done and you get that the body shame still comes back of like, oh, no. Yeah, you feel it in your body, that's for sure. It's oh, horrible, yeah, remembering like, oh, did I actually say that? Did I do that? I'm doing this thing now and this is from reading Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul, where he talks yeah. about when something hits your stuff and to actually feel, you know, when you feel it in your body and then to kind of relax around and let it pass through. So a few things came up for me the other day and I haven't had a drink for four and a half years. So remembering a few shitty things that had, you know, taken place and I'd feel it in my tummy. And so yeah. I actually did that. I was just like, okay, relax around it and just sort of be with it and acknowledge it because normally I just go, oh, God. But I just sort of let it move through and it sounds a bit hippy-dippy about it. It's good, I think. It does actually work because you really do. That's one of the things that you notice is you just have to sit in your stuff. Like you're just in it. Like there's no way out of it. And I think that's yeah. why when you've got a lot of stuff and I guess a lot of us come from trauma or yeah. or sometimes, you know, difficult emotional stuff and and you're too busy. Often it's like I'm too busy to deal with that. Mm. I'll just push it away. I'll put it to the back. And alcohol's great for that. Alcohol really is your, is your fuzz out where you go, oh, it, it feels like a, a holiday. from. It is. It's a holiday from your IQ. Yes, until you wake up the next day and then yeah, you're it's feeling not. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like it's like afterpay. <laughs> <laughs> it's going, just like afterpay. It's exactly, I know, exactly like afterpay. It's unethical and you end up going, I don't even, you know how you go home with something, that afterpay is evil. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea is like, no, have this. You can't afford it. Like you don't need it, but take it and then you can deal with paying it and more than you it's actually worth later. <laughs> but that's evil. That's that, pawn shop evil. It is, yes. I actually got it on my website, but yeah. Have you? I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, Maybe I should take it pay. Oh, get it. oh, my God. No, I'm, but I love that a, alcohol is after pay. Yeah, you pay after. Yeah, you pay after. That's a really um, great way of looking at it. So tell me. I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you. Firstly, and like I'd ask anyone who comes on this podcast, when did you first start drinking? I started drinking when I was about 15, 16, mm-hmm. probably at school. I was like year 11. Well, that's quite a bit older for people on this podcast. Yeah, mm. I didn't start. I didn't. I was a really, I lived in a country town. Where? I met my friends in Queensland in a place called Wandai. That means wild dog. Um <laughs> <laughs> Drinking was a big pastime there. Like you just, everyone drank. It was, it was a sport, mm-hmm. you know, like in a lot of those country towns. Um, and, you know, so I, I didn't drink. I'd seen alcohol um, impact, you know, my family in a really negative way as most like generally nearly every family in those circumstances did. Mine was really dramatic as a kid. My dad died when he was 30 because oh, wow. he was an alcoholic and wow. he he was a reckless binge drinker who um, he was very violent when he, he had that real Jekyll and Hyde personality. Where, mm-hmm. And I'm probably the most like him um, personality-wise, you know, mm-hmm. out of my brother and myself. 
and you know I I was six when he died and it was um and and, and I'd I'd lived with a drinking father and if he was coming home and he would just disappear for weeks at a time and and then when he would come back um he'd be really drunk and he'd get so drunk he would not be it'd be like he was crazy because he was just sort of unhinged and then he would be violent um He'd lock us out. We'd sleep in the bush. He'd hit my mum. He's broken a collarbone. He'd do all like it, it, he. He never hit me, but you were as a child, you're witnessed to that, mm. and so it made my life really unsafe. You know, we were one of those. We lived in a housing commission house made of asbestos, full of holes from being you know, punched. Mm. So there were always posters stuck over the holes. You couldn't take the posters down, and it. it yeah, it was it was. To me, that's what alcohol. What like that was my first experience of of alcohol. Well, that's and, terrifying. Yeah, so and, you being put outside. Oh yeah, mum's we'd, getting we'd beat lock up in and... our mum. If he was home late, if he hadn't if he hadn't come home, it would be like he'd be drunk. So she'd lock us in a room, and then he'd just put the chair through the door. He'd smash the door down anyway to get to you, and then you'd be up all night because he'd be ranting, and then the remorse would come the next day where he would cry, and you know, and feel so bad because he often had large, long blackout periods where he didn't know what he'd done. And I remember seeing my mum hold a chair over his, obviously I was very young, but she had, she was about to smash a chair over his head while he was sleeping. And she'd always tried to explain it to me as a kid. She goes, do you know, your dad doesn't mean it. He's actually really sick. He has a disease. And, and you know, children really, they take on what you're saying. So all I do is my mother was the one that looked unhinged and I went, why are you going to hit him on the head? Because you said he was sick and then she had to put the chair down. Uh, so, so that was. So, yeah, what does that it, do to the nervous system of a six-year-old? Oh, I was a very stressed child. It's, it's a fairly... Yeah. Um, I've, and when you grow up like that, if you grow up in uh, in alcohol violence... It's it feels real, and nobody ever came. Nobody. We lived in this little country town, and everyone knew us. But it's kind of like they let the alcoholic men deal with their, you know, terrorize their families, and nothing was said. You know, mm. it was, you know, it's a long time ago. I'm fifty four, so you know, it's, you know, just you know, forty something years ago, well, fifty years ago, and. You know, so, but as a child, I really remember that the feeling of shame, but that's the first mm. one, mm. huge shame, the kind of shame where it, it's, um, it, it, it seeps into you, the sense of your wrongness and your, mm. your, your, your lack of worth. It's just, mm. it's just massive in those situations. Um, uh, terrifying. Like it, mm. every day was, I was so frightened and I was, I was like a Woody Allen type child. I was really neurotic. So I developed OCD too as a child as a trauma reaction, mm. but nobody noticed um, because they were too, they were, no one really noticed anything with kids like that. But I definitely had intrusive, it was intrusive thinking that I had a lot, but that was, that was a whole other, that was a whole other weird story. But mm. it, it was, and a lot of bargaining as a kid. Like I was a really deep thinking, um, introspective, strange child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't imagine. I remember going to someone's house. I remember they had this friend called Karen Preston 
and I got invited to her house. And it was the weirdest experience because her family ate brown bread and they played like a board game like Scrabble after dinner. Her father was a scientist, you know, I think her mother was too. And it was this cohesive, lovely, collaborative, sharing, cooperative family. And it made me feel weird. Like I came out of that going, that is that was weird. I don't want to go there again. Mm. And, I, and I think it's because it was so alien because I mm. actually thought my experience, even though you knew, and that really brought home how strange it was. So I think as a mm. child you want it to stop. You know, I really wanted it to stop. So I, um, did I pray? I brought up Catholic. I think I did. I think I prayed as a child. But what I had was this really weird sense, (laughs) sounds insane, but it probably is. I had this sense that this would not continue. It was not possible for this Mm. to continue, for me to have a life I realized uh, this is at five or something. I, this couldn't, this was not, I knew it wasn't sustainable. I didn't have words for it, mm-hmm. but I knew. Mm. And yeah. So you kind of knew it was going to stop, the situation would stop. Well, I knew it couldn't keep going. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I remember thinking, you can't, this can't keep going. Like you, this is not, something mm-hmm. has to happen. And if, and I remember there was always a lot of bargaining, like in, with, in those situations where I would bargain to the universe or God or whatever it was. If my life, if I'm meant to have a life, like it was all about whether I was even meant to be there, then this will stop somehow. So, whoa, yeah. So it's, they're, they're very big themes, and I don't know whether it's clearly not normal. Children didn't go into therapy then. It wasn't until years later um, that I went, wow, probably a bit affected from my childhood. Um, <laughs> you think? Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe it does. But mm. it's funny because this, this, this clearly is where a lot of my um, drinking culture was seated because it's really deeply emotionally mm. embedded. And my dad was, he was wild and, and before he was violent, he was fun and loved and um, funny. And, you know, when I go back to my country town, the old men, because when, when, a, when, a, when a young person dies, it's kind of like the old men in that town that remember him, he's like a folk hero to them. They don't remember, they don't know that story. All they know is he was one of those travelling boxers in, you know, those sideshows. He'd do a bit of that and he was a footballer and he was whatever. But they they carried on the story of young Noko who was, who they loved. That they, It's weird. The old men remembered him more than mm. anyone. But anyway, I think mum had another one of those big fights and it was one of those days where she'd, and she'd actually said to him, she remembers it because she had to live with it. She said, if there's such a thing as a God, how can he let someone like you live? And he never came home. So Whoa. that was really full on. <laughs> it was really full on. And it's it was one of those really dramatic moments where, you know, some moments in your life are just crystallised. And I was standing at my, you know, my, my window. And I remember the curtains, the texture of these pale pink nylon curtains and looking out and I saw my um the police car pull up and I saw my aunt come out and she kind of as she walked out of the car she kind of just you know people in grief she just collapsed and I was watching it unfold a bit like a movie like I was a ch- I didn't have context as a child but I I knew something had happened and then you know what it's like my mother was just saw that and my mother didn't need to hear she knew, so she just let out this most, you know, those scream of, mm. you know, when you know something. 
And I remember thinking in this probably almost borderline sociopathic way, but as a survivor, I went, okay, it starts now. And that's exactly what I, I had this thought that I actually really loved my dad, but I knew he couldn't keep going. Like I knew if I was going to have a life, he had to go basically because mm. of his, le- it's really sad, his level of alcoholism. And he's so sad because he, you know, he, he, he didn't get a chance to, to kind of get, he'd been sober for a year. And, you know, every time they say, every time you pick up with, with alcoholism, you don't get back on the bus um, at the beginning, you get back on where you got off. So he's, mm. he's, um, and he, of course, it was generational from his, my grandfather, his father, who was a whole other story of, you know, next level That was abuse. my next question, actually. What was your dad's experience growing up? Oh, ter- my, terrible. My my grandfather became what's like, a, he, he was an alcoholic and really emotionally abusive, but stopped drinking, um, had drunk for a long time and used to get my dad out of bed in the middle of the night, put him on a cushion at 13 or 14 and make him drive him 300 miles somewhere sober up and then go what the bloody hell are we doing here and then make him go back and have to go to school then he eventually he was a weirdo he'd locked himself in his bedroom my grandfather for six weeks and then when he came out he didn't really he never spoke to my grandmother ever again they lived together right to the end he didn't use please goodbye hello Please, thank you, hello, goodbye, or use your name. So I didn't. I thought he was the gardener. I didn't even know it was my grandfather <laughs> for a long time. So he had this laugh, weird but... emotional disconnection. It was oh. such a weird. It was weird. And so my dad was the opposite. He was a really warm, emotional person. And my my grandfather never drank again, but he lived in this weird world of just absolutely emotionally shut down so he never he only ever called my father boy he never called him by his name and he he didn't have any, saying hello or anything like that was too personal hmm. it was too much of it he would just break into a conversation he would with a request it was just a blur and that was it and then he may not speak to you for three or four years Wow, I wonder was, what was going on in his childhood then. You know? I know, we don't know about that. No one's, we haven't managed to dig into him. Have you um, ever done any generational, like have you ever done any um, family constellation therapy no, or any of that? No, I haven't done any family constellation because mm. I think that that one's pretty, no, we haven't actually, I haven't done, I've, I've done a lot of work over the years on the family, mm. obviously, you know, dealing with stuff later in life, you sort of always you go, oh, no, not back at my childhood again. Do we mm-hmm. have to come back here? You know how you do that in therapy? You go, mm-hmm. I, I think it is actually in there. But anyway, I um, I had this sense of my life kind of started then. Did your self-worth change? Oh, yeah. No, it was like it I was changed in charge. then or did that stay as a core belief for you up until now? Um, that you no, had, I think that... it's changed. Mm. I, think, I think generally there was, you know, you know how you have – I. What I realised is I had to take at a really young age that I was in charge of this, that I was not I was not a bystander. Mm. That was really huge. So whenever <laughs> Mum was twenty seven when she was widowed, whenever anyone came near her, I was just made sure I went, There is no way you are out. I was like the small child that just managed to get rid of anyone that was remotely interested in her. <laughs> I went, no, I'm not I'm not getting rid of another one you know oh that was hard God. like I feel and I actually felt like I'd met like I went I sort of thought I think I made this like I used to think I'd made it happen in the way that 
it was felt like destiny. Like, mm. It was weird. It was like I, I can't explain as a child how I the strange head that you you end up developing, and that's part of the OCD is you start to develop the bargaining and the rules. If this happens, then that will happen. Like mm. it's like, because your world is so traumatic and massive to to navigate you start to mm-hmm. do that so weirdly outside my like he was killed in our family car and outside so my it was little, a car accident your car accident yeah. so at the police the police station was behind my house in the country town and quite a big um paddock and that's where they kept crashed cars so when i was in my bedroom for a year afterwards i would look out and i would oh. see the crashed family car my dad died in just straight outside my window oh, like down what? in the paddock I know, and it was weirder. Weirder than that was that as kids in that na- in our neighbourhood, we used to all play in the crash cars. So, of course, at the time came when I had to, when I was with a group of friends and we were getting into my crash car where my dad had died. And I remember that moment of seeing, you know, the brownish spots of where blood was, the, the little, the, the glass, you know, that, you know, the, bits of glass fragment, your toy, bits of your toys. And there was that moment when it was like weird. And then there was that moment where it wasn't. Oh, true. Yeah, you kind of, it just was a car where it, it didn't, it didn't have all that meaning. I actually, got, it's funny that because it doesn't spook me out at all. Mm. In fact, it was, in a sense, it was kind of, good I think because sometimes the mechanisms or the or the the things around death are hidden from us or taken away because they're kind mm. of forbidden mm. so it kind of normalized this this very violent death for me by being able to play in it and be in it and be brave enough to look at it and and see what it was I actually think and I sometimes wonder whether that was part of the reason sometimes that you know was part of why I just, just, I seemed to come out of it okay. Like I was, mm. I was just lucky. Mm. I'm sure I've got lots of, I'm sure other partners will tell you everything that's wrong with me, but I was just a lucky kid in that I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I came out of it with a pretty good self-esteem in the end. But out of all of that mm. though, I have to admit, I was never sexually abused. I was never physically abused and I was loved. I was never told I was a piece of shit. And it's really amazing because I look back at that and go, it's amazing how, you know, I had a very traumatic, violent childhood, but I've come out of it um, with a lot of self-belief. Mm. And I'm not, I don't, you know, I've definitely got patterns mm. like we all do, but I, I think I'm okay in, in a lot of other areas. But alcohol, obviously, sorry, long answer to a question. I didn't drink I think I was scared of alcohol as a child. I, I felt mm. nervous whenever my mother drank. She wasn't much of a drinker, but it, she'd have a few wines at Christmas. She'd have a bit of cold duck, whatever it's called. Was it, cold, was it the cold duck? Or a little bit of, um, you know, Blue Nun or something, one of those horrible Black Tower, those awful, awful wines that were popular then. And, and you couldn't, and you know, and she'd get a little bit, you know, laugh and have fun. But then... You'd see she'd have a few she'd she'd have a few wines and just laugh hysterically, and then it was hard to marry up the violence, the death, and the mm. uh, this massive trauma with you know a bottle of wine and a few giggles on the deck. 
Yeah, God, they're so it was such a big thing. So when I so I had never I was kind of scared. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't so I didn't I didn't drink till I was about at I think when I was at um school at a party and I had something to drink and obviously it, you know, I remember that feeling, that lightheaded, buzzy feeling and going like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, that first kind of out-of-body experience I'd had and it was, um, you know, I loved it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It was it was something that then, you know, I think I probably did drink a bit more, you know, probably the next couple of times I drank to the point where I, you know, I vomited. There's always an early vomit in there. And then by about 16, oh, I had a terrible, oh, I've got a good shameful party story. Go. Oh, Danny, it's, oh, no, this is a shame disclaimer. Imagine this person. Like, I'm in a country town. I come from a real poor working class family. And in this town that's kind of full of those kind of, it's probably the closest part of Australia that's, where I come from is is a bit like the deep south of America in right. in, in the sense that mm. Joe Bjorki Peterson came from there. And I went to his, I wasn't invited, his, like a niece of his, and, and anyone listening, he was like Queensland's probably most terrifically right-wing premier that held power for a long time. Mm. Um, and he was very loved there in the where I grew up, obviously. And... I think I went to his, and and they were obviously they were you know had been the premier, his family that were lived in that area, they were like it was the upper echelon, as they weren't really, but as far as they were concerned, but they had money, mm-hmm. um, and so I was invited. I wasn't invited. I ended up going to this party. It was I think it was a twenty first, was it an eighteenth? It was my, I was only sixteen, and it was like a garden party, and so I, I get there. And I'm wearing, I made this really amazing outfit and I turn up and someone's doing tequila shots and I never had tequila. So I had four. And the next thing I know, I'm lying in an old woman's dress back home at my place, which was quite a way away. And with no idea of how, well, you know how you go, it's like a, it's like a really, alcohol's like a really vicious film editor where you, (laughs) yes, there's too many jump cuts. (laughs) <laughs> and you go, how did I get from there to there? Like what? And I went, oh, no. Mm. And you go, oh, no. And that was my first proper blackout, mm. you know, and I was 16. Yeah. You shouldn't be having blackouts at 16. Like, no, that's young. Yeah, so, I was, I was yeah. really young. And then my friend goes, oh, no, Mandy, like you had four tequila slammers. I must have blacked out. And then she said I was just sitting next to her at the table and I started smiling. And then I just put my hands out and I vomited in my own hands at the table and just politely just kind of put it underneath the table. And she goes, I think you need to go to the bathroom, Mandy. So I stood up and I walked straight ahead. But then they've got this massive table full of the cake and all the food. It only The party had only started. Like it had only been going for half an hour, right? Oof. Hadn't even really started. And I walked straight through the the um, catering table I took out I knocked everything over I wrecked all their food next thing I know I think I could slightly remember was being naked in a shower and it was like the sand was down I could see all these old women crying and pointing at me because I destroyed the party oh no I know and then they dressed they took my clothes and put me in some old lady Osti frock and then 
someone had been charged with taking me home and then that's what and then that was it and in a small country town that was just so humiliating I wrote a letter of apology oh you did how was that received I don't know no one ever got back to me (laughs) but that was pretty bad like that was one of those ones when you thought about it I went oh my god that was so embarrassing because you know everyone was talking about it I was definitely talked about did you put two and two together then at that point that okay I had the alcohol it caused this behavior he was the you know the Mm. effect of it um, did you put two and two together and then give it some space or was it just straight back in the next weekend? I think I did wait. I, I was more, I went, I blamed tequila. I went, well, that doesn't happen when I drank cider or beer or wine or bourbon or whatever else I was drinking. It just happens with tequila. So I, I never really drank tequila again. Mm-hmm. So I just blamed one alcohol. Mm. Um, but of course I've had heaps more alcoholic blackouts since then. Yeah. Um, and I never blame wine. <laughs> <laughs> I eventually, it's funny how you go through alcohol, isn't it? Until you find what you like to drink. Mm. You know, And it's usually a series of different blackouts. Like I remember when I stopped champagne yeah. and I stopped white wine in the day mm. and then, you know, and then, and then, and then beer, you know, yeah. I was sort of getting through them all. I <laughs> know going through, and I used to tell myself that too, where I used to drink white wine all the time as a white wine drinker. Mm. And or champagne, mm-hmm. and then I stopped for two years because my friend said to me, "This is I was in an unhappy marriage at the time too, and I was drinking a lot." And she goes, oh, "I was a and I was a chronic drink dialer." Oh, me too. Oh mm. God, imagine I would just hang up on myself now. I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. I put my friends through this, and I'd ring them up. And she goes, she go, and I, and I, to the next day, the only way I'd know who I'd phoned was I'd have to check. I'd, there'd be a point where I remembered and I didn't remember hanging up or I didn't remember the whole phone call. I remember this one friend and I said, what, what did I do? What did I say? And she goes, well, she, she goes, you talked about yourself for about two hours and <laughs> fuck how bad is that? Oh, cringe. Repeaty, repeaty. Repeaty, repeaty. Same story over and over. <laughs> and then... Uh, you got a bit emotional. Oh, no. <laughs> and then I started talking about myself and you passed out. <laughs> <laughs> that is just terrible. Oh, you passed yeah. out. Yeah, I went, oh, I can talk about yourself. I'm out of here. <laughs> um, and that's when I stopped. I stopped for two years and then. Um, well, so you stopped for two years. Mm-hmm. And how old were you then? 40. Okay. 38, mm-hmm. 39, 40. Mm-hmm. And that was good. But, you know, I started drinking again then with, um, I'd have a bit of red wine. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of, that was, in, and now I'm more of a red drinker. Mm. You I, were. I was. Yeah. And I, I think I've had enough too. I went to the point where I went, oh, I've had enough wine. That's enough. I don't. I love the smell of it still. Mm. But. Yeah, I don't miss all the other stuff. But, yeah, I kind mm. of worked my way through. I'd been a bourbon drinker mm-hmm. and, you know, had pregnancies. I didn't really drink much in my 20s mm-hmm. at all, actually. I kind of I kind of drank in my late teens, you know, f- fruity Lexia casts of wine. Oh, same. Yeah, I know. And you're kind of like – and excessive drinking was not frowned on. No, no. You know, and for anything, it was kind of, you know – celebrated we'd get a keg of beer for a party you know we'd you know that was that was all well and good and then 
I think in my 20s, I just didn't drink that much. I smoked a lot of pot. I think that's what I did instead. And I didn't tend to. And my partner at the time was heroin. Wow. So, and he wasn't much of a drinker. Wow. Did you use heroin? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, mm. Look, I might have, you know, once or twice I, you know, snorted a bit or something. I never used to, um, never, never used to syringe. And I kind of went, not that that changes anything. Um, I kind of went, the couple of times I sort of tried it, I went, this is too good. I would get totally addicted to this. And I managed to go, no, but I did smoke a lot of pot. And it, I just wasn't around alcohol that much. So I didn't, I didn't buy a bottle of wine and take it home, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, because I, was, I also had a baby at that stage too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it didn't occur. I was just smoking pot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't. Up. Yeah, so there was probably a good 10 years where I didn't drink very much at all. Yeah, and then it started to ramp yeah, up again? Yeah, it was more of a, um, it, it, it was kind of in my early 30s where I really started to drink again. It was that social wine. It wasn't around. The other times I'd go to functions and you'd have a couple of glasses of wine. And as I got older, it that, you know, and I'd had small children, I didn't go out that much. And a little, you know, and I ne- I'm a comedian and I don't perform when I'm drinking. I might have one glass of, I might have something, one or two, but because you have to be really in charge, for me, I just never drank when I was performing mm-hmm. either. So, I was kind of lucky with that, that I hadn't, I'm really glad I would have hated to have set up a work hygiene that meant I had to be pissed to perform. I really, I know some, I've got some colleagues that really relied on alcohol to get up. Yeah. It's interesting for myself when I would perform music, I would, I never, ever got drunk on stage because I can't pitch properly. Yeah. Don't pitch that well at the best of times, but when I'm pissed, I just, it's like I can't hear. So I never, ever would really get drunk and then play gigs or drink afterwards. Um, so I was lucky as well that that never kind of crept in. Yeah, it's always me. the after drink. I'd definitely drink afterwards. It's afterwards, yeah. And that's when you kind of go. And it is really part of sitting, you know, afterwards when everyone's gone home, mm. drinking with the bar staff or the mm. couple of people that you've played a gig with. And, yeah. oh, oh, you know, that's, you know, there was a bit of that. Well, sometimes I have to, often I had to drive, so it was actually really good. So I never did. So if if I if I had to drive home, then that just wasn't. I never got that. So my my career was kind of saved by having too much association because very often I had to drive a couple of hours home. Um, and but there would definitely have been nights where I haven't had to, and I've got you know smashed. Um, mm. I, I don't, and, I, and it's really, and you know, in your own professional life, you just don't want people seeing you really drunk. I mean, I, only one time I've ever been on stage drunk and my friend goes, you were a bit drunk last night. I'm like, oh my God, was I? What was I, was it, was it noticeable? And she goes, well, you were a bit slurry. I'm like, oh no, slurry on stage. That's just awful. I guess as a comedian too, it'd be more obvious because you're talking so much where if yeah. you're a musician, you can kind of hide it behind playing your instrument and, yeah. and singing. It's not quite as obvious perhaps until you really kind of tipped over the edge. Exactly. I saw her, um, I went to see Lawrence Mooney at the Byron yeah. Comedy Festival and, and there was a guy playing before him who was clearly pretty drunk, very bloaty in the face and looked nothing like the guy that was on the... On the poster. 
Yeah. No, because that guy was chiseled and good looking and this sort of bloated red face dude came out. <laughs> and I was like, really? And then, you know, his eyes were kind of swimming around his head and he was pissed. And he was funny. Like, he was still funny, but yeah. you could tell he was pissed. And it was funny when Lawrence came out. I was like, oh, worlds apart. Like, he was sharp. He was on yeah, it. Yeah. And totally different and very, like, very funny. The other guy was funny too. But it just, you could see. It was just so Yeah, you lose amazing. your sharpness when you're... If you're drunk, you're just a bit fuzzy. I love what you said about when when you're on stage and when you're doing your job as a comedian, you have to be – Was it, I can't remember the word you said, but it was in control or you have to be in it's, charge. You're kind of in charge. In charge. What a great and – you, And you don't – and when you're – alcohol just takes that away. Um, and I've seen colleagues that when they're drinking on stage – I can't bear watching people perform with a beer in their hand. Yeah, this guy drank like three beers. In his and, and you're going, can you not get through 20 minutes, half an hour without a beer? Like it just, you don't want to watch someone drink. Like I don't even drink water when I'm on stage because I'm too busy doing my doing thing. thing. Just, you know, you might have a sip of water occasionally, but I rarely ever do that. Yeah, you don't. It's kind of hard, you know, in that. And as someone that performs, as you know, we're in those kind of professions where alcohol is just at the it's at the center of what we do mm. you know it's mm-hmm. it's the audience is drinking we want the audience to drink that we've we're, we're there to help them sell more alcohol mm. um, because that's the more alcohol that sells the more successful the venue is and basically mm-hmm. when you're performing you are basically a an attractor to people to come and drink and to buy more alcohol, that's and why they sort of... More, yeah, I know. That's I know. why they have like four support acts sometimes before the main act yeah. starts to keep it going. I remember years ago, I think we we're about 24 or 25, Ash and I had a residency at Mount Buller playing covers and it was hilarious. It was horrendous. Like we were... <laughs> but anyway, we would get the people to buy shots and we would have shots as well. And so the bar, they loved us. The, yeah. The guy there loved us and he'd book us back for seasons because we got them to drink so much piss. Oh, yeah, and they'd go and like, and you, yeah, and it's just part and of That it. was sort of our job. Yeah. And, you and know, I that- knew if later on too, if we wanted to get gigs, like we had a residency, at the, uh, I had, Ash did as well, but we both had residencies at the Dan O'Connell in Carlton. And the way to keep your residency is to keep the people drinking. Yeah, you know? wow. So We're yeah. in that kind of lower level. Yeah, um, yeah, because you've got that's how you make that's how the money comes in. Yeah, I know with it. my one of my shows that I do, women like us, the audiences, they're my real wine drinking women. You know, mm-hmm. they're the wine drinking women, and they're like the ones that have the, they probably have you know the, the plaques. You know, <laughs> it's one o'clock. You know, it's kind <laughs> of like like and they come in groups of twenty, and the bar goes. They've drunk all our wine. We've got to order more wine in. Like they. <laughs> And that's exactly that. They drink heaps of wine. They mm. get smashed. They enjoy the comedy. And they don't want to know that I don't drink. To them, you know, they don't want me pissed on stage, but they mm. it's part of, you know, I'm one, I'm one of them, if you know what I mean. So mm. I'm always really careful on stage. You know, you find, you know, it's funny if I, I thought, oh, I'll try some material around not drinking. It's kind of like it's really hard. Oh, yeah, that would be hard. Ash would never... He never publicizes on stage about not drinking because he'd just because nobody be pays any attention to you really what you're doing. Well, no one wants to hear the musician or the person they've no. come to see perform give them a, a lecture about what they're kind of actually doing in the process of. So, it's an interesting. It is really, you know, it's really hard. In, yeah, in that, but so performing was never my. 
I guess that wasn't my trigger. My trigger, I think, really is at home, which a mm. home drink. I became mm-hmm. a home drinker on your own or with people. Um, or both. Generally with my husband, mm-hmm. or I'd have a. I'd happily have a couple of glasses of red, or when I was drinking white, you might have. But I'd probably. It's just the regularity of it, and I might drink. If I was working, I wouldn't drink that night. But if I was home, so when I was working, I wouldn't drink. But if I was at home, you know, maybe four nights a week or three nights a week, you know, I'd go, well, I'll just have a cup, a glass of wine at five or six o'clock. And then when I had dinner at eight o'clock, I wouldn't drink after that generally. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you opened a bottle, I'd finish it. Mm. And then sometimes you get into a second bottle. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I rarely would go past that. So it doesn't seem like it's a huge problem. Like you're not still blackout drinking then at this point? Occasionally I would. I would wake up and go, oh, God, I've accidentally drunk too much. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I'd always drank faster than everybody else. I'm mm, a fast too. drinker, yeah. Mm. And I'd always be looking for more. You get that slightly compulsive feeling mm. of going, you know, and I'm not, someone goes, why don't you just have one? And I realised a long time ago that I don't see the point of drinking one. Mm. Like if I'm going to drink one glass of wine, why mm. would you leave the like the bottles? Like just drink the whole bottle. I would be the same because if I would say to myself, mm. Danny, why don't you just drink one? And so then I'll try to drink one and I'd spend the rest of the night agitated and yeah. feel like I had an itch I couldn't scratch, you know, that kind of feeling mm. like something's ugh. And I realised that that was just annoying, really. If I could drink one, I would just have none. Like <laughs> if, I, if I had the control to drink one, it means I don't really feel like it. If I don't really feel like it, then I wouldn't drink it. Mm. And you often get to that point where you go, oh, I just really, you know when you have to go somewhere you go, oh, I so don't feel like drinking again and I know I'm going to have to after three mm. nights of having a few few wines. And I've got lots of friendships where it's always like let's have a wine, let's meet and have a wine, let's have lunch and have a wine. I'm not a day drinker at all mm. but I and I'm not someone that I very rarely, I'll go to lunches and stuff but I rarely would drink in the daytime. I'm an evening drinker. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a like a six o'clock to eight o'clock. Occasionally, I'll keep going after that, but I'm not I'm not up at two or three in the morning. I've usually fallen asleep by nine o'clock. Party <laughs> girl. Yeah, I'm really. I'm like a really. I have a couple of glasses of wine, but I get drunker faster than most people. Mm, like probably because they're. Do you quick. do that? Yeah, I did. I'd, I'd get drunk really quickly and pass out. That's early. what I do. Mm. I get drunk and pass out. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. you know. In the middle of a conversation, on the couch, mm-hmm. and everyone else has a really good, and then everyone have a really good time, and I had missed out because I'd just fallen asleep. Yeah, yeah. I, it was falling asleep's weirdly embarrassing because it's not really asleep. Like you can say, "I just fell asleep." You mm. did, but you fucking passed out. Passed out. out. You passed out. It's a big yeah. difference. So, what was what was wrong with it? What's led you to this point where you're like, okay, I'm going to get rid of this again? I don't think I like myself when I drink. Mm. I, I, that shame about, you know, and I've got a deep family history. Mm. I've only told you a bit of it on that side. It's on the other side as well. And, in my, in, and you know, I'd be a fool to think that I'm not, you know, if alcoholism is a doomsday clock, then I'm, that I'm five to alcoholic. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, I, I, I don't think I am an alcoholic. I think I've been a very heavy drinker, but I think I'm what, how far away am I? What, what I could just tip over into com- compulsive drinking. 
Mm. Really, I'm I'm currently I I stopped while I was still in control mm. because I could stop, but if I didn't, what if I reach a point where I can't stop? Mm. That's what I was scared of, and I think that's that's the challenge, is because. I think a lot of people feel like that and it scares people when you talk about it because people don't want to have to give up. And mm. it is a whole new world that you have to work out how to relate to people, how to have friendships that don't have alcohol in them, how to tolerate um, people who are intolerable when they're drunk that you used to love that now you go, I fucking can't see you. Mm. Um, mm. You know, how to, you know, how to, how to negotiate all those complex situations how to schmooze fucking hell how to schmooze without booze oh my god i've done a few of those opening parties and everyone's drinking and you know i'm just there pushing cheese into my mouth like i put i think i put a whole camembert in there one day <laughs> like just people trying to talk to me and i'm like i've got so much cheese and cracker the no booze schmooze that's, that's really hard yeah. yeah and you really have to and and people have an expectation you know, I'm not allowed to be an introvert. I'm a comedian. I am, I'm perceived in a certain way and there's a certain expectation. I did work out, though, in doing it. When I'm around people and they started to drink, I just ask questions. Mm, that's a good way of doing it. Yeah, because people don't get pissed to listen. Are you actually an introvert, do you think? Yeah, or an omnivore. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, I, I vary between different states. But, you know, part of me is self-conscious and and mm. you know does that audit in the car what did i say god you know i do mm. that and the other part of me goes oh fuck who cares mm. so, but i do and i kind of like that that's i think that's my that keeps me in check but yeah it's you know i i think <laughs> i think i i was going i'm gonna i, I was i was in i think i'm gonna engage in binge listening <laughs> <laughs> Because people, that's the worst thing. People get drunk. And, it, you know, when you'll sit there when there's a certain level of drinking happening, and I know because I used to be the ringleader, is that somehow everyone's talking at the same time. <laughs> yeah. like, when you're sober, you cannot enter that conversation. It's yes. really hard. Yes, yes. I, and the other night I was at a gig and the music was really loud and everyone was yelling at each other, have a conversation. So what have you been, like that kind of thing? And I went, oh, this is hard to do when you're not drinking. Mm. Like you really do need to be pissed to have a shouty conversation because there comes a point where you're going, it's exhausting. I'm, I'm either going to just listen mm-hmm. or be quiet or I'll just don't try and talk to me when I'm listening to the music or I'm just going to go home. Like you become a bit like one of those people. It's because you become so self-aware that you become so... Yeah. Yeah, because you're not that, because you're not becoming the shouty person, but you're actually feeling, you're feeling the discomfort in your yeah. body. You're feeling this, all, all that's happening around you. And it's like, actually, this is exhausting. It is really hard work, you know. So, so yeah, that's, that is really, it is really hard work. So I stopped because I went, I think it's, you know, my best friend, um, one of my closest friends has, you know, she's um, sober, but. You know, I had to do an intervention for her with her years ago and she nearly died. You know, it was really, it was, you know, and she was drinking at her peak six to eight litres of wine a day starting early in the morning. I mean, she was, 
her level of alcohol, she, she always jokes about it. She, she'd see other people drink and she'd go, oh, that's like level one. Like she's she's so, her, her drinking was so excessive. She was going to kill herself. Like if she'd kept going, she would have she would have died. So, mm. you know, and I've seen how hard she's worked. How long has she been sober for? She's relapsed a couple of times, but look, off and on, it's probably been about five or six years, maybe six years now that she's sober. She's doing really well. And she's had a few relapses in there, but got herself back in there. She keeps Mm. herself honest. She's so accepting and she's a real, um, she's very honest about her drinking and that Mm -hmm. she can't drink. And Mm. she's tried the, well, maybe I can. Mm. And when she said that, I went, oh, oh my God, no. Mm. You know, and I know I'm, my drinking was never at that level, you mm. know, but it doesn't matter. Like, you know, and when you've got a friend, and I realise that's how my drinking tricked me, when you've got a friend who's that, whose alcoholism is that bad, don't I look good? Well, I'm not yeah. that bad. Yeah. You know, I'm not drinking four to six or six to eight litres of wine a day. I don't wake up at 8 a.m. and skull a goon sack so mm. i must be okay you know we i think when you when you measure yourself like that mm. you know it's it's you, you come off so anyway i sort of i feel good about i just can't there was no i just kind of stopped yeah, it wasn't like there was a big rock bottom moment no. for you this time it was just like and i'm really glad mm. about that mm. because i think when you do the rock bottoms often you're doing it out of shame mm. and this time, it's why I don't even know, I can't tell you the exact date because mm. I had more of, I had really bad vertigo, which was not from alcohol at all. It's more, it's, it, you know, we still can't work out what it was, but I'd had some sort of weird health thing and it, I stopped drinking for a week while I was in, I was in a hospital and then I went, well, I haven't drunk for a week. I might just continue not drinking. Because I actually, when I actually feel really good and, I, and I'm sleeping better and I like myself and I realised how much I bargain with myself mm. and when I go somewhere, I'll go, okay, you're going to drop. And how I, how I quietly manage those little demons of compulsion where if I'm the designated driver and my husband has, has he's not a, he's, he drinks but hardly at all and if he has one more or two two drinks, I would get really annoyed that I wasn't able to drink because I had mm. to be his driver. And I sort of, these are, they're, they're real addiction mm. signs, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I understand addiction pretty well. I've been around it a lot. Mm. Enough to know how much you can kid yourself, you know. So mm. And then I've got, you know, I've got five kids, you mm. know, and I've got kids that, you know, drink excessively now mm. because I've role modelled it. It's part of our friendship groups. We're kind of, you know, part of my family. My family drinks a lot, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. still. So, and socially drinks. And I've got some of my favorite people are just, they're just the best drinkers. You know, the ones that they drink fabulous wine and they make amazing food. And, and, the, and it's just a beautiful experience, like mm. the whole thing, you know. But I just, you know, kind How of. How do you feel not being a part of that? You feel really left out. Mm-hmm. I think, I think. I think emotionally um, it's very lonely stopping drinking. Mm, it can be until you kind of... Until you kind of hook in there. I feel a little bit on my own mm. at times. I feel, and I'd say, and I go home 
and I just go to bed and I read a book or and I really like that like mm-hmm. and I think sometimes that kind of learning to self-soothe a little bit mm-hmm. you know is actually really good and even with my friendship group I feel like I'm not part of that group and they would never say that about me because they're not but I I don't, I don't know I, feel, I do feel it's hard I think that's some days it's easier Depends what we're doing. It's those little things that can really trigger you. And it still hurts me sometimes if I'm not invited to something or I hear mums at the soccer organising catch-ups later and I'm not invited, I'm assuming, because I don't drink. I think that's why. I don't think it's because I'm a dick. But um, (laughs) one of the... Turns out you're a dick when you're sober. (laughs) How bad is that? Like like you need to drink. That's when you go, look, if I found out I'm a complete dick when I'm sober, that's when you go back to drinking. One of the women that I coach, she's really just, she's so lovely. And she was saying she's only early days and she goes out, sorry, when they've got an event coming up on the, like on the weekend, her and her girlfriends would always get together. There were, I think, I think there was three of them. They'd get together and get ready together at one of their houses and have drinks and get ready and go out. And she was saying that there was an event on the weekend and she didn't get the call. Oh, that's really sad. To come over. Because you're not having the glass of wine. And it really it, it hit her stuff. Like she's not having the praise. Yeah, that's right. So that's really, um, I get that. And I could mm. totally understand and empathise with her that, yeah, that's really ouchy. That would hurt. Yeah, you're defi- there's definitely a sense of when you go somewhere and you go home and you know your friends are staying till midnight or one o'clock. Part of you goes, they won't even remember the last part. No, and they, they usually And don't. they don't. Yeah. But there's there's definitely a camaraderie in hanging out together at that level. And it, it really isn't there. I've tried to change it up so that the evenings, I look forward to the mornings now. I get mm. up and I walk the beach with a friend or I, I, I make it a social thing. I always go and meet someone at 6 a.m. or 5.30. Mm. I get a coffee mm. and then I'll do like a 5 or 6K walk just at the beach. Yeah. And I always take someone with me. I don't want it to be. It's it's exercise, but it's really social and I have a lovely conversation and I see the sunrise mm. at, or that morning beach. I have, I have a swim if it's the right climate and that's I look forward to those mornings in the Mm. same way and the coffee and Mm. the conversation and the beach in the same way I used to look forward to that wine yes at six o'clock and I had to have a point in my day it didn't have to be at the same but I had to have something that I could pin to I I just know Mm. for me I had to have and some people would go you need to give up coffee now and then you need to give up the beach and then you need to (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I don't need to be you know I feel you know, this time when I stopped, I kind of went, maybe I won't start again. Maybe that's it. Maybe I don't drink anymore. Mm. And and that's okay. But I do feel at time. It's interesting going through those times of feeling, um, yeah, just there's definitely a loneliness. There's definitely a sense of othering. You're being, you're othered because mm. you're sitting outside a culture and of how we've all related around alcohol. It's so massive mm. that. You're on. You you you're locked out. It's quite the rebellion, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And I, I would, you know. And there's days when it's really, really hard. And I think it scares people to stop. 
it scared me to stop because I was worried what I'd do when I went to some of those functions and I worried like a kid that you're going to miss out, that people weren't going to like you Mm. and that you weren't interesting and you weren't funny and that you'd stick and that or that you'd become obvious and people would notice you too much. You're either unnoticed or you'd notice too much because you're the weird one who, you know, has been hooking into the soda water. It's like what everything you just said then, it's just I'm just thinking about, you know, little Mandy who yeah. was noticed in the in the country town too much because of, you know, yeah. what was going on at home. Then also little Mandy being locked away in a cupboard and and perhaps maybe feeling not noticed as well or for what was going on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot and of also that sense things. of not not being worthy. All those little versions of little Mandy showing up in that situation. It's, um... That's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's very good. It is true. that, And I think that is, there is a continuum in how I feel as an adult around alcohol as, as what my experience was. And I'd have to say, if I was to be truly honest, my drinking makes me feel unsafe. Mm. I don't feel safe. And I, I don't trust myself. Yeah. And, and you know that feeling... When you have an alcoholic blackout, it's like you could have killed someone. It's like you've buried a body somewhere in your sleep. Oh, my God. That's the feeling. That's what the shame feels like. The shame feels like there's something buried back there and I don't know where it is or what it is, but I did it. And it's, it's sitting there, you know, and is it going to get uncovered and will I be exposed and will people find out about all the bodies that I've buried? That's what it feels like to me. Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> I know. Like you have just articulated. All, all, I'm just like, oh, my God, she's a genius. <laughs> That's a serial killer. Yes, but I it remember like that. It. Yeah, and I, I remember that same feeling. I've talked about it for on the podcast a bit, of feeling unsafe in myself, like what, what am I going to do this time? Yeah. And feeling fucking nervous before I'd even started drinking towards the end, like, what am I going to end up doing? And I know now you've just nailed it for me too, that feeling of like, (laughs) what did I fucking bury back there? Yeah, what did I say? Yeah, what what came out? Yeah, wow. And I think I used alcohol, I was just like, I deserve a drink. I've been working really hard. It's okay. Mandy got really drunk because... it meant Mandy's just been pushing herself too much, which is true, because I'm 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 I have massive work capacity and I an output, and so I'll I will do that. So if I drink, if I'm working really heaps, really heaps, good good English for a <laughs> podcast. Um, if I'm working a lot, and there's and I'm not having any breaks or putting any me time in. If I do like three weeks of working every day, morning to night, if I have a drink. I can guarantee I'll get really drunk mm. because that's how that's how I turn myself off. It's really lazy, actually. Mm. It's a lazy way of of um, that self soothing thing. Like it's you're not doing anything good for yourself. You're just mm. going. Bunk. It's so true. It's like it's that easy exit. It's like that. I'm just going to hit this button, yeah. and then it's the easy way out. And it really, really, really is. So, how are you self soothing now when you've gone into work mode and you're doing a lot? Because I know you do a lot. So how are you self-soothing yourself these days? Um, probably what I struggle with the most, 
And it's that end of the day thing where I really um, feel anxious. I realise I have anxiety. I'm not an ang- I'm not an anxious person in the sense I don't walk around. Um, ang- anxiety is such a funny word now. I'm always reticent to use it because I would never say I have an anxiety condition, but I have that this tight ball of of stress about what haven't I done? What have I forgotten? What did I fuck up today? What and and that comes from the way I work and my, my fragmented mind, mm. and and that's the thing that's hard to turn off to actually be present for people in your life. Mm. Like like alcohol makes you present. Like I don't, like you know like I'll just have a few drinks and then I'll be so present for everyone in my life. Like not yeah, especially um, not when Petey Repeaty comes out. Oh, no, <laughs> and the the kids all make fun of me. Oh, mom, it's the worst thing I don't hear kids tell stories because mm. mine are older. Mine are like twenty seven, twenty six, twenty three, twenty one, and thirteen. Mum, remember that time when you were really drunk and you tried to feed the cat a muffin? Hey, Mum, remember that time you were really drunk and you walked into that glass door and then you... Mum, remember that time you got really drunk and you did the worm and you just dropped it on the carpet but it was concrete and you just fucking slammed? Remember that? I've got it on video. I shared it. You fucking shared it. What did you do? I like going, can you not do that? Mum, remember that? Like, mm. It's like, and you're going... It, all my kids have so many stories of mom. Remember that time you were drunk, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like I am the drunk. I was the drunk mom of going, you know, and you're going. That's that's not, you know, that's that's because that's how you know I turn off and then <laughs> become really ridiculous and mm. funny, but and it irritating. I probably so now what do I do? I I go. Li- I'll lie down. I'll do some more cleaning. Like, that's a good idea. Um, washing. Do you know why? This sounds weird. I find ironing, weirdly, in the evening is that transition time. Like, I go walking in the morning, so I don't go walking in the evening. I'm thinking I could go to the gym for half an hour, but that can involve getting in the car and driving away, and I don't want to have to do that. So sometimes I'll do the ironing. Sometimes I'll water the plants. Mm-hmm. Just walk around and do some watering. Sometimes I'll go lie down and watch something, you know, on Netflix or something. I'll just on my own mm. or I'll lie down and read a book mm-hmm. or I'll get one of my substitutes, which is my fake beer. I haven't found a wine I like yet. So I just have like, and I might have, or I'll make my, I really love the the gin that I bought, which is the liar's gin, which is mm-hmm. I'd have a gin and tonic, but it wasn't really gin. And I mm-hmm. make myself a special drink. Mm. It's a great tool. And just have that and sit yeah. on the veranda like I used to with my husband while he has his one scotch because mm-hmm. he can do that. Yeah. Bloody annoying. I know. I've, I've My husband, I've been with him for probably 14 years and I've probably seen him drunk well, maybe twice. Wow. But not very drunk. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, probably that's all. Like, and that would be, he would have, that would have been a summer, a football reunion or something like it just, it's just not him. So, yeah. So that's my, um, you know, that funny thing too, when you know, I don't know, you just do all those things with yourself, but I know that my friends and my family have talked about my drinking. Mm. You can feel it. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. want any, that's horrible. Yeah. That's really shameful. Like you know when people are discussing how drunk you were 
and we and when they say those that really horrible phrase you know you know oh, we, I'm really worried about Mandy <laughs> I know that I can hear it being said mm-hmm. she, I'm really you know I can hear my friends and people who love me worrying about me mm-hmm. when you're that little bit out of control yeah so that's part of it too that was you know so what's it feel like you were saying you know you have to be in charge to get up on stage do you feel like you're becoming more in charge of your life now that you've taken the alcohol out again yeah I do I really like that feeling Mm. I like the feeling of being in charge of my life and and feeling I don't feel compromised yeah you know so and, and I feel accountable and I, am I, um, it's okay. Like it's actually really good. Sometimes when I'm dealing with hard things, like I've had some really hard things for me to deal with, particularly when my youngest, I'm sorry, youngest, my oldest daughter was growing up. She'd had eating disorder and she'd had lots of mental health stuff. So there had been suicidality and ongoing, like really, um, Lots and lots of self-harm, lots of very complex emotional stuff that is so hard to unpack mm. and then deal with the rest, not just the rest of your kids, be a mum, do this, deal with a kid that's, you know, done something really extreme and mm. then go out and do a job, work in front of mm. people, make them laugh. Like sometimes I was negotiating such complex um emotional stuff and it was so hard to it was so painful mm. and scary and difficult to deal with I would just have a few drinks mm-hmm. and I think that made me drink more didn't make it better mm. but it it and it doesn't change like I'm still dealing with it the stuff I'm dealing with hasn't gone away I I'm just stepping into it more now like mm. I've become, I think the time that I've dealt with complex emotional issues in my family has gone, most people probably wouldn't, you know what it is, you kind of go, I belong to a very different tribe of mothers because of my experiences now and I have to trust that I know how to, that I can negotiate this. I don't belong, there are a tribe of parents and mothers who've lost a child it's mm. a very different place too. Mm. But I've dealt with some really hard stuff and continue to. And I've had to find a way to navigate that without losing myself so I can still turn up for me and I can still turn up for my family. Mm. Um, because drinking is not a is not a um, feasible way of actually doing it, like, you know. It's not, it's not. And I would allow myself to drink more because I knew of how hard my situation was. Mm. To navigate something that's complex like that, you Mm. do have to have a certain amount of trust in yourself. And I think that there's something in that, that when you are not drinking anymore, it comes down to, okay, do I trust myself to navigate these waters? Do I trust myself enough? And I think the fact that you kind of see that you're back in charge of your life and that you are in charge, that we can have that trust because alcohol takes that trust away. And we think I can't, for one, I can't trust myself when I'm a drinker, but also I don't trust myself to navigate these waters. I'm not strong enough. I have to have alcohol, but we realize that actually we fucking can. 
Oh, you can totally do it. And one of the things that you end up doing, and I've been in some situations lately where I went, I really notice how I deal with confrontation and situations really differently. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when something's really hard or I'm hit with a bit of a trigger or I've got to deal with something, I can de-escalate a situation. But if I've been drinking or I'm hungover, I I throw it, there's no de-escalation. I've got a it's like bang and I'm really mm. confrontational. Mm. So I have you have that little bit you have impulse control in the sense you have that moment to check in and go, "Oh, if I say that this could happen, let's just pull back from that." So yes. You can get some strategies. Do you know the hard thing is for all of us as humans is dealing with pain. It's yeah. it's pain. You know, how do we deal with pain? The pain of lack of self-love, the pain of not being loved by others, the pain of loss and the pain of grief and the pain, you know, there's so much, you know, and that is the Buddhist thing, isn't it? That is the, that so much of life is suffering Mm. and, you know, is finding those tools. It's not very funny, but it's, (laughs) but it is finding those tools in your toolbox and developing them and, Mm. that you can deal with the immense joy mm. and the immense pain of life. Weirdly, they're the two triggers for me for drinking. Mm. Immense mm. joy and, you know, being incredibly happy, which mm. is why we go, wow, this happened, pop a cork yeah. and buck. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I remember finding out about a family member who died in a you know, very well-known family member, you know, we just, we heard about it. It was such a shock and it's like 11 o'clock in the morning and we're, we all open the, we just hit the scotch mm. like a, you know, and that was, that was really, I don't know what else you, and it, it was so hard because that was that extreme shock of a, mm. of a, of a situation that no one knew how to negotiate hard yeah absolutely one of the greatest joys in my life is the hard stuff of yeah. being sober because i realize how strong i am well, isn't that good yeah you kind of go you underestimate yourself um yeah so all right great so hopefully so 12 months we're going to yeah. do 12 months yeah. yeah we'll get you back in three months and see how you're doing we'll check in i know see oh how i go this is great accountability is there anything coming up for you that you're worried about or um oh only christmas and stuff like that mm. i think i think that's the main thing that i'm worried about that kind of whole period of time where all everyone's home and everyone's drinking around me constantly mm. and i'm like oh well that's great we'll get you in mid-december and we'll talk about the plan how, tell about how i'm going with everyone drinking around me and i get jealous sometimes though do you get jealous no so I get, i'm drink. still in my things jealous no, I, I'm not now. I was. I back get a little then. bit jealous. They're like those weird feelings of. I get a little bit of jealous that that people might still be drinking, and I wish they'd join me. Mm. I wish my friends would come and join me over on my island instead of staying on their island. Yeah, that's what I feel a bit like now, and I go like, "Well, can't you come over here? Because you're really boring over there." Like you're really boring. <laughs> like I had to leave a party the other night because it was one friend of mine was being so loud, and they're adorable. Mm-hmm. And they're probably not, but it was an, it was triggering me because she's someone I love getting pissed with, and mm-hmm. I felt I went, I'm just going to go now because I can't relate to you because you're irritating, and she's not irritating. 
She's beautiful. But I just had to find that. Then that was me. That's not them. That's me. But isn't that great that you're able to recognise that? Yeah. And that's for people listening, you know, and I've said this before, but when you do feel a little uncomfortable or you're finding yourself being triggered mm-hmm. in a situation, just get the fuck out. Just yeah, get out. Get out because... You know, it's better to just get out. Than start a punch-up. I've never done that. <laughs> just that. Or have to end up in some old lady's frock, you know. I know, passed out, like going, well, that was a good solution. <laughs> that um, didn't help. But let's, yeah. um, I think it would be great to get you in mid-December. We'll we'll make a okay. plan and that everyone listening, that will help them to make a plan for their all Christmas right, as well. All right, that's good. We're all in this together, peeps. Yeah, and, you know, you can always invite sober people to your parties because I realise what I do now is, is what a lot of sober people do is I do the dishes. Oh my god, I'm that woman. I'm that woman in the kitchen. Just no, it's fine. No, don't want to know. I love doing this. We're saying we're two yet, we're one. I know, just washing up. Don't worry. Oh, you know, it's the least I can do. Basically, anyone in the Northern Rivers, if you want some <laughs> really good, clean guests, invite yeah. Mandy and Danny over. I know. The yeah. place will be shipped. They're a little bit anxious, they're like a bit linen, socially kind of awkward, and they will fucking wash up. <laughs> Um, I'll I'll do your washing online. Heaps of stuff. I'll get into your linen press. I'll play with your kids. I'll do I like I'll do anything like that. Sorting, anything, um, so I don't have to like force myself, my introverted self, into small talk with yeah. you people. At my, I was around at um, my in laws the other day, and there's a whole lot of in laws there all at once. And so I'm the same. I'll have dinner, and then bang, I'm in the kitchen. And then my sister in law, I haven't seen for years, she's standing there. She's watching me scrub the shit out of this pan. And she goes, oh, my God. I said, what? She goes, you're really anxious right now. You're feeling really uncomfortable. That's why you're doing the dishes. And I was just like, yeah, nailed it. Duh. <laughs> I know. I'm not doing it for fun. Isn't it funny? It is really full on, isn't it? Where you kind of, yeah, you. It, I just never realised. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm really enjoying, I'm enjoying being comfortable with myself and being comfortable with my uncomfortable self. And yeah. that. And actually just seeing what happens because I don't think I've really done that before. I think I've masked a lot of my personality and I, I think mm. I've given out to the world so much of what they want to see mm. that it's a really interesting process just to work out who you are. It's really interesting to be curious about. So I was down in Port Macquarie just a couple of nights ago and I took myself out to dinner and I noticed as I you know, bragged about how wonderful I am that I'm out taking myself out for dinner on Instagram and you know but then I was like and then I said in the post for fuck's sake I've got to put my phone away because I'm being a really bad date already so I put my phone away and I put it down under the bag after I'd press send on the post and I was having a lovely time you know I was eating some food and I'm having some deep thoughts and it was really lovely but as soon as someone came in the restaurant I felt this urge to get my phone out of my bag and I thought that's weird Danny you know then I just I was determined then I'm not picking up the phone until I'm out of this restaurant and then I'd settle in again and then another group would come in and again all I want to do is pick up this phone isn't that weird the compulsion but I felt rather than give myself a hard time I thought well just be curious with this what is it about this situation that's making you uncomfortable and I realized that it was just that I thought they might judge me because I'm sitting here on my own or what are they thinking about me? And it was really bothering me. And it's, again, it's this same thing, just like being at a party, being self-conscious. They used to be the triggers to get me to drink. And it was the exact same thing. Now, it wasn't alcohol. It was 
something to escape it so yeah. I didn't have to focus something on it. Something to hide behind, really. Yeah, but it was really nice to just sit and acknowledge that. And then some people came and sat right fucking next to me. Oh. And I was like, oh, You've done it. Because you know what you do when you see a woman sitting on her own, just sitting there being in her own self and eating and looking around and just being present, what you actually think is, wow, look at that woman. She's just so confident and amazing. What would it – you actually go, imagine just having that confidence just to to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, You know? Yes. But instead, you you know, inside she's going, fuck, do I pick the phone up? Do I not pick the phone up? Do I put it down? Do I have another water? Do I just put some sugar? Is there cheese? Where's the cheese? (laughs) It's so true, right? But anyway, what I'm getting at, it's just – Really nice to sit and notice your uncomfortable bits yeah. and just be curious without judging them and just take note of it. And it was really great because I shared it with my group later on that night, the grads group, and we, you know, I was telling them all about it. And yeah, it was a, it's a good exercise. So it's really nice to get to know yourself in that way. Yeah. And being sober is you'll just, you get to know yourself, but even four and a half years down the track, you know, still getting to know myself and my triggers and understanding them, but not wanting to mask them anymore. Mm. And I don't know if that comes with age as well, but yeah. yeah. I love doing it and not putting shit on AA, but I, I love doing this and doing it before I need AA. Like I need a 12 step program to do it, but I still mm. think it, you're, you're an idiot if you don't think um, that you need to be accountable and that you need to, check in with it because I think some people maybe they can just stop but but it's a process you know it's a process for sure and just one last question if you could go back in time and talk to little Mandy what would you say to her what advice would you give her I'd tell her she was right I think I was a really intuitive little kid I think I knew I think I had I reckon I went you you it was worth you were you were worth it that's all you'd say. You're worth it, You're which worth is good. It. And I and I actually think my intuition was really good. I think I had. I think I had, little kids can be quite amazing mm. in the way they develop mm-hmm. their capacity to survive. You know, it's just survival. But you leave it there. <laughs> and maybe this move now is your intuition. Like you said earlier, you kind of. You know, you're stopping yourself before you have to stop. So maybe that's your intuition. That could be it. Mm. Well, good on you, Mandy Nolan. You're amazing. Have you got anything coming up that we share on here with the podcast? I'm telling you, people, you've got to check Mandy out. She's fucking hilarious. I've got some comedy coming up. I think I've got a couple of – I've got a country witches show coming up on the 28th of October in Bangalore at the A&I Hall. I have Glenn Innes doing a comedy show on the 8th of October, the service and district – whatever it is called, district services club – I'm, I've got a boob fest for raising money for breast cancer, Bangalore, the 19th of October. You can always go to my website. I've got um, workshops coming up. I'm running a speaker training in Sydney on the... Which I'm coming to. Yeah, 15th, 16th of October. I've got some opinion writing workshops that I'm doing as well too, which are writing workshops. So, yeah, I've always got workshops running something, doing something. You're always doing something. So I'll put links in the show notes. Thank you. And we'll see you mid-December. Thanks, Danny. Mandy Nolan, you're amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.